we cannot talk about the fridge action figure at all. I refuse to. <laughs> Hands off. <laughs> Me and William Perry did not get along. Here with uh, Tim Doyle. Uh, you might know him as Nakatome Tim on Twitter. It's always a pleasure to cross paths with uh, somebody with a good Twitter game. Nice. Thank you very much. Yeah. I guess uh, what we've met up uh, uh, talking about G.I. Joe on Twitter, correct? Correct. We'll get to Joe in a second. Okay. I kind of wanted to approach more general pop culture. You're a designer. Mm-hmm. Yes. I would say, I would venture to say maybe even new media, if I'm not too bold. But uh, what's some pop culture aesthetic? Is that word played? Or is that word still okay? No, it still works. It still works, yeah. No, I mean, definitely, I started out uh, as an illustrator wanting to work in comic books, but that is very hard. I mean, you're pop culture savvy. Right. I've, I've seen your tweet game. Give me some aesthetics that you recall, either from childhood, but something that still hits. Can be colors, can be designs. Oh, man. Well, I mean, the Trapper Keeper designs of the 80s. Like crazy neon unicorns, Lambo. and uh, yeah, Lamborghinis and palm trees and shades and so my my buddy James White, he's a uh, Signal Noise on Twitter. He uh, he's kind of distilled that into uh, I like to call it Lisa Frank Frazetta. It's like just the neon pink, but it's also like barbarians and I don't know. It just it really appeals to me. Yeah, and like uh, you know, you're wearing a Tron shirt. Everything in Tron is like my aesthetic. Like it's like European design with neon and just crazy. Uh, there's yet one more pop culture property that has not escaped you, as per your Inktober. Uh-huh. You want to talk some Cobra aesthetic real quick? Yeah. No, I, I love, uh, yeah, for Inktober, every day I uh, drew a G.I. Joe character. It was all Cobra. And I uh, just wanted to break in sketchbook and uh, kind of do something I could do from memory. Like, I didn't really need reference for most of that. And just go to the bar, get some old fashioned, and start drawing G.I. Joe. What was it about uh, Cobra's aesthetic that... It's aged well. Maybe it's even gotten stronger over time. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's like, it's you know, obviously military, but fantasy. And it's it's kind of grounded, at least for the first couple of years of G.I. Joe. It was plausibly realistic military. And then it just went crazy. Like, you know, what's you got? Cobra Law, Big Boa. Watch yourself. Hey, I know. But no, it's just like, oh, we are no longer pretending this is real army anymore. But I just, I kind of liked it. It looked great. Like, just this evil, faceless army that's uh, snake-themed. It's, it's kind of a, I don't know, they look great. Destro, Baroness, Major Blood, they all have uh, amazing costumes. Just, like, still look pretty badass today. In honor of that Inktober work, let's do just a quick pop culture color palette. I'm going to give you a color you need jerk me. Oh, wow. Okay. Where it came to you from pop culture. Where, where you remember it from. All right. Is that making sense? It's, uh, it's just weird, but we'll do it. We'll go Let's with do it. it. Let's go purple. Purple? Sound, uh, Shockwave from Transformers, man. Let's go blue. Blue? Oh, gosh. Yeah, probably Spider-Man, little Captain America in there. Nicely done. Yeah. Green? Green? Hulk. It's just, it's dominates. Yellow. Yellow? Oh, that's a tricky one, man. I immediately thought of Sinestro, but probably Bumblebee. Orange? Yeah, orange. Ooh. Yeah, I just think of like Charlie Brown Thanksgiving, uh, Halloween. It's like first thing that pops in my head. It's the right season. Yeah, yeah. And last, of course, red. Red? Yeah, uh, Iron Man. Iron Man's by far my favorite superhero. It's a good one to end on. I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about social media. Sure. I know that uh, your, your social media gets loud from time to time. Yeah. Uh, give me Tim Nakatome timeline. 
that you would say, that's a good timeline. Give me a percentage of political fire versus creative versus personal. I mean, it's tricky, right? Like, with the election just a couple weeks ago, I was really ramping up. I mean, ever since Trump got elected, it's been a lot of, like, it's just one crisis after another. It's hard to separate out the, like, I understand why artists that I'm friends with only just do art. They just talk about art stuff, that's it. They want to stay on brand, stay on topic, stay focused. But, you know, I'm at a position in my career where I don't have to worry about that as much. And, like, my political activism is really important to me because I got kids, I got to make sure this planet lasts, you know. Uh, and then, you know, close to home, like in the comic book industry, there's been a rise of alt-right, white supremacist comic book douchebags on Twitter trying to shoehorn their way into the industry. And it's, I, you know, they're attacking friends of mine. And I'm like, I feel like, because I don't have a stake in the comic book industry, I feel like I'm able to go after these guys without risking my job. It is a strange age of social media, isn't it? It is weird. It's like a new battlefront, honestly. It's hard to keep uh, a true artist silent, so I, I can definitely echo that. Where can people find uh, both your tweets and your amazing designs, Tim? So uh, all the artwork is on Nakatomi Inc. as an incorporated. So if you just Google Nakatomi Art, it'll pop up. Here with Buzz Dixon at the SoCal Joe Show. Is this your first time? This is my first time at the SoCal Joe Show, but uh, I'll be happy to come back again. It's a really nice show. Wine country, right? Yes, it is. I guess uh, let's revisit the web of remembrance. Okay. If I can turn a phrase. Mm-hmm. How close were you to, I guess, the the history of Cobra Lock? I guess on that one interview with the headcast, you said that it was their origin was ambiguous. Was that because of lack of time or intentionally so? Well, it was intentionally show, so because... Uh, you let the audience fill in details in their minds, uh, and it saves you a lot of work. <laughs> we uh, we wanted to we wanted to be mysterious enough that um, it would it would elicit thought in the audience, as opposed to just trying to nail everything down. Yeah, that makes sense. An ice age knocked him out, right? Yeah. Mm. Just curious. Uh, <laughs> Some people call it like a heartbeat. I've heard you call it a spine, like a story spine. Right. That's. I was going to say that I I got that from William Goldman, who died just a short while ago. But but Goldman was a a master screenwriter. He wrote Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and The Princess Bride, and the term he always used was the spine of a story. So I swiped it without any. I like it. It's personal. You dealt with G.I. Joe off and on for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the creators around it. Uh, I mean, the, the tagline is knowing is half the battle. Is it fair to speculate it's a franchise built around intelligence? That's an interesting approach to it. I'll, I'll certainly say that. A, the, the characters, even in the show itself, as opposed to the PSA, they were marked by an, uh, an ability to glean knowledge, to pick stuff up, to figure things out and apply it in their lives. They weren't just blundering through the way some characters do. So, yeah, I think you could say that that uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a very real but very odd sense, a quest for knowledge was indeed, you know, the spine of the show, yeah. where he blindsides me with like a really existential like question that I'm gonna have to thoroughly think about. Yeah, I'm like, oh man, I never even... My reputation proceeds. Um, Who hurt you? 
<laughs> oh, I, I wasn't prepared for this. So many. <laughs> Here with author Aaron Sparrow at the uh, SoCal Joe Show. Um, no stranger to attorney, are you? No, no, not at all. I, uh, I'm a huge, uh, a huge He-Man fan. There you go. But Shira, Masters, you know, just that whole, that whole universe is fascinating to me. Indeed. But we're talking Joe. At least if I read tweets right, you got, you have family in the military, no? I do, yes. So I guess my question for you is, what is a real American hero to you in 2018? Existential. Wow. That is, that is, uh... <laughs> Take your time, brother. I think, uh, yeah, I, I guess... The best answer that I could give would be something that uh, my dad would always tell us is when we were kids, which uh, has always stuck with me, which was the, the measure of a person's character is how they treat somebody who can do nothing for them. And I always try and think of that when uh, I encounter, you know, whether it's, it's fans, whether it's customers, whether it's just people that you run into while you're shopping, you know, in your everyday life. Um, I always just try to... I always just try to, like, brighten people's days, you know? If I'm, like, talking to a cashier, that is a hard job, you know? It's, it's tough. You're dealing with the public all the time. People aren't always the most pleasant. Sometimes they're downright nasty. So I always try and, like, amp it up a little bit. Even if I'm not feeling it, you know, I'm having a rough day, I always try and amp it up a little bit just to, like, make their day better. So I, I guess that that would, be, that would be my answer. Someone like, someone like my dad who thinks of things like that and, uh, you know, thinks of how, you know, hey, you need to make sure that you're always treating other people, you know? Just because that uh, well. just because that answer was so good, let's let's ask one more Joe question. Okay. Now that we got the personality or, or the feel for you, well, what's a Joe that resonates with you? It could uh, be aesthetic. It could be file card. Okay. Um, well, when I first got into GI Joe when I was a kid, uh, that when that very first those the original uh, twelve came out, uh, my favorite was Stalker. Uh, it was something about his file card. Uh, he had the cool camo pattern on the figure. Uh, and then his file card, like, he kind of had a rough background. And it, it, it kind of made him feel, you know, yeah, he was a you know, a gang leader in the streets. But then he joined the military and he cleaned up his life. And now he was, you know, this positive role model. And so, for some reason, that, that resonated with me along with his whole look. You know, he had the cool beret, you know, the Special Forces beret. He had the camo. Um, so I really, really loved him. Uh, I had special affection for Flash because that was the first G.I. Joe that I ever found. And a cool padded armor, and then his little laser backpack kind of looked like it had a little spout on it. So in my mind, that was a jetpack, which made him cool. And then, of course, once uh, once you started getting into once I started getting into the comics, and issue twenty one came out, the, uh, the silent it. interlude, Don't do it. Uh, Snake Eyes, you know, like everybody else, Snake Eyes became my boy. You know, the Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow story was was too intriguing, and uh, ninjas were huge in the eighties. So. <laughs> Fair enough. Give me one Cobra aesthetic that works for you. I can't remember whose book it was, but there was a comic that came out, and I remember when I read it, uh, whoever wrote it gave Cobra Commander this speech that was so, like, smooth and just kind of, like, played to, you know, feelings of alienation and feelings that, like, the American dream had been lost, and it was just such a well-written speech that when I read it, I was like, holy crap, if I heard this, I might be compelled to join Cobra. Like, that's how good the writing was, you know? And you could just see how, how you know, a beguiling, charismatic character could really, like, turn your, you know, your way of thinking towards something that was kind of, you know, that had, like, sinister undertones. And so that was that was a really great moment. Indeed. Welcome you to know. Springfield. Yeah. <laughs> um, where can people find your words next? Uh, I'm working on a... Uh, Creator own project with uh, with James Silvani, uh, my artist on Darkwing Duck, that we uh, haven't announced yet. We're still uh, doing character designs, and uh, I'm still finishing up the uh, the first script 
that I think that we're going to probably uh, put on Indiegogo, see if we can crowdfund it. Uh, and then uh, I've got a couple pitches in at various companies, so we'll see if those go, but I can't really talk about those yet. What's your uh, social media of choice? Uh, I'm, you can, it's probably easiest to reach me on Twitter, uh, Aaron underscore Sparrow. Uh, I'm also on uh, Instagram, and uh, I mean, I'm not, uh, you know, I just post pictures there and things like that, but you can get like cool little shots of like toys that I'm working on, you know, custom toys and, and uh, things that I'm collecting, and you know, if you're into that sort of stuff, come along with me and, uh, you know, let's, let's talk toys on Instagram. <laughs>
Real American Hero Larry Hama. Oh, yeah, yeah. Big fan. Obviously, I come from a G.I. Joe angle. Uh-huh. Uh, who is Larry Hama as... I mean, I don't want to say a mentor, but as yeah, kind of yeah, a figure I would say he's in a the mentor. community. Yeah, he's, he's been a great mentor to me. Absolutely. Uh, as, a, as kind of a, a force in the comic world, or just a, a creator, what, what would you say about Larry in a few words? Oh, I mean, Larry is uh, just the, the best. He's such a solid individual, man of great integrity. He's got... Uh, he's a renaissance man, you know? I have a, a infinite respect for him. He does things for people he doesn't need to do, and that's it's not true for everybody in this business. I mean, lots of people are nice, but, you know, he really went out of his way to help me out, you know, without, um, you know, it's, it's, been, it's been great. And uh, just meeting other people who he's also mentored, it's, it's, a, it's a great thing. Thank you, Jet Set creator Amy Chu. <laughs> Thank you. Back at it again in Ontario, California. Have you been to this convention before? This is actually my first time doing the show. Comic Con Revolution with one of the busiest men in the business right now? <laughs> I don't know about that. I'm, I'm busy. I don't know if I'm the busiest or one of, but yeah, I'm, I'm pretty up there. You know this is a hype machine, brother. We're going to play it up. I did not know that you were in uh, radio mm-hmm. in a previous life. I, yeah, I was. It was my early 20s, many moons ago. Yeah. I'm with uh, cover artist, I don't think it's a stretch to say, Hitman, codename Hitman. Um, <laughs> did a streak of Joe covers. Let's just, we bump, we bump together a lot. Let's, uh, let's just talk one at a time. One of the most recent to drop, uh, I guess I'm going to call it the, the G.I. Joe Last Supper. The original 13, stretched across one. How many covers is that? It'll be five issue cover art. Um, 266 through 270. Right on. They're going to drop a print, obviously. Quite possibly a Comic-Con. Okay. It may be available at Comic-Con, yeah. All right. As Joe fan, I would definitely keep my eyes open for that. Just kind of a, maybe a legacy Joe question. You're you're still in the strength of doing a bunch of Joe covers. Yeah, I've got more coming. Working with IDW, but it can be more general uh, as a brand. Give me a Joe name. It's, it's been a good teammate along the way. It could be an editor. It could be just uh, just an influence. Well, I love working with my editor, Tom Waltz. Mm, sure. I, long before I worked with IDW and on G.I. Joe, I was friends with Tom. That's not what got me the job. You know, um, the ability to draw G.I. Joe and, and knowing the characters and, and my love for it kind of got me cemented the job for me, but it was just a perk that I ended up getting to work with him. But yeah, Tom Waltz is... Uh, Incredible guy, just straight shooter, down to earth, always positive. Yeah, I love him to death. I mean, the guy's like family to me. Respect. You kind of have found your way into the Joe scene through the vehicles. Is there any that are coming up that, that people, the readers should keep their eyes open for? Now that it's confirmed, I mean, I can tell people about it, um, but it'll be like revealed at Comic Con. But I'm doing another set of connecting covers. It'll be issues 271 through 275. The last five issues of the Snake Hunt story arc, but those connecting covers will feature every member of GI Joe from the beginning Marvel issue number one in 1982 through the current IDW run. Um, so a ton of characters, and picture it as kind of like a, a high school class photo. Yeah. And like the October Guard will be on it because they're allies of GI Joe. Um, 
Quinn will work his way in there, you know, friends of Snake Eyes. Um, but the really cool thing about it is one of my dear friends, I, I was able to get him to ink it. Uh, Mike Vosberg will be returning to G.I. Joe to, to ink my cover for me. Right on, full circle. Yeah. You're up against, what is it, that Devil's Due cover that had like basically everybody in front of the Capitol on it? There'll be a lot more than that. There you go. There'll be a lot more than that and it'll be in a uh, much different much different pose. I think a more fun, kind of uh, light-hearted pose than standing on the steps of the Capitol. G.I. Joe, a real American hero in the near future. Jamie Sullivan. Yep. Thank you, brother. Thanks, man. Two of the biggest names in the genre, horror and sci-fi, in one person. That would be Sandy King Carpenter. When you were looking at the script for They Live, did you know you were looking at probably the dang- the most dangerous movie that Hollywood really would really ever produce? Is that fair? Oh, yeah. They didn't want us to do it. You know, I think most of the movies we've done were a fight to get made. But we had a contract uh, where they would approve on that particular set of movies uh, based on a one-paragraph premise. And it had been pre-approved. Mm-hmm. And uh, they had to take it. Well, it seems like that movie is the right cocktail of characters and, and Roddy Piper. And I'm going to forget his, his the second actor's name. Keith um, David. Thank you. But just, just that relationship, and uh, I suppose as a creator, I'm going to put you on the spot. Who are you in They Live Now? Are you the preacher? Are you David Keith? Are you Roddy Piper? It's Keith David. Keith uh, David, thank you. Who am I? I don't know. I, t- I suppose I'm, I'm more Roddy. I'm more the kind of person that yells from the rooftops. Mm. Cheers. Here with none other than the voice of Destro, Arthur Burkhart, um, who's lived a life of many chapters, as well as voice acting. Let's start with Destro, though. Voice acting. What is your name again, young man? Curtis Herod, sir. Curtis? Curtis Herod. Herod? Yes. How do you spell your last name? H-E-R-O-D, like the Bible, actually. Oh, I was wondering. I didn't want to get it wrong. Okay. Why do you think that what I do for a living is different from the experience existentially of living? Acting is acting. So what is voice acting to you? I'm going to ask you. I'm going to ask you this question because keep people keep doing that as if well, first of all, so-called voice actors are marginal in the God-blessed business in the industry anyway. But some of the most interesting people to talk to. Like whom? Well, I would say a couple months ago I caught a different voice of Destro, uh, Eric Bauza in Long Beach. Who's Eric Bauza? I've never heard of him, sir. Well, he knows about you. Uh, he carries the torch, or he did for Destro for a minute voice acting wise I think if I say voice I'm, acting, I'm not a voice actor there's no such thing I'm either an actor or I'm not Would you okay say? I'm a performing artist now a person in Greek means by sound a whole person you shall be known by the sound you make isn't that interesting that probably one of the hardest 
artistic venues we can possibly have is to do it only by sound. The whole panoply of character is created by the sound one makes, which is a very hard task. So I'm not a voice actor, I'm simply an actor performing in a role. I hate that, Mr. Herod. I freaking hate it, Mr. Herod. And people come up to me and say, Arthur, how does it like to be a voice actor? And I want to tell you, you know, I don't want to talk to you. Well, I think if somebody comes in with that lens, they don't want to overstep. But I will say this. Would you say you've used acting to project your voice or message through life? Or or it's just come like something you had to do? Actually, sir, that's an interesting question on many levels. To a certain extent, for my survival, it was something that I had to do. It was something that I was called to do. And it was something that I really wanted to do. And it was something that I felt that I could help things, change things, change the order. I went to the theater, into the theater because black people had limited access to the modes of production. And because we did, the theater was the only place that I could be. Until I found out, well, until they made access to film production a little easier for me and I could work in the streets, you know, <laughs> shooting movies or photography of some kind. But the theater as production mode was easy for me. Now, my mother is the theater and I've been working since I was nine years old. A lot of people didn't know that. Even in high school where I went, I didn't join the plays there because they, would, they didn't bring me in. I went to this. Uh, I went to a preparatory school in New England. They didn't. Really, they didn't really do any shows that they thought that I could be in, because I'm black, because I'm an Afro African American. You know, we don't. We don't uh, fit in. Or we didn't fit in for a long time. So our theater was a theater, if there was a theater, which was segregated from the rest of humanity. And that's why I don't. Put up with this idea of being a, a voice actor. I don't. It, it's a. It's a. It's a kind of. A, it's a label, kind of. No, it's more than a label. It's um. It's uh, uh. It's shallow. It doesn't define who I am, what I've done, hey, and uh, what we do. Well, when you've spoken about Destro, at least at this point, you feel pretty. Uh black and white about him, was there ever a time that you felt differently when you were reading the character? Like that he did have honor? If there was honor among thieves and murderers, yeah, sure, of course. And not only that, as a performer, as an actor, rather, I had to find out the certain things that I had to learn and grow up in. If I was contracted to do a role and I really didn't want to do the role, I had to find out if there was something in that role that I fell in love with, that I had to like, that I had to admire, that I had, or I had to find something in me, no matter how repulsive that role was, that was me. Got it? Mr. Herod, you're shaking your head. Why don't you say that you got it? I do got you. Yeah, are, are you out of tape? No, I'm good, sir. I just want to make sure the decimals were good. 
Don't worry, my editing hand is tight. Yeah? It is. Yeah? Well, maybe. I Well, I don't know. As a matter of fact, I think that you know these podcasts that I'm doing once in a while uh, are uh, out of a sense of not duty or just being decent, but um, arrogance. Arrogance. Conceit. Overbearing. Self-righteous pride. You know? These are things that an artist has got to look out for. And... A, a lot, there's a lot that goes into creating the role. If myself is involved, okay, then my part of myself are my flaws. And so I had to look for my flaws in the creation of Destro. I'm trying to get to your God bless it. In the creation of Destro, is it still on? I had to look at my flaws. And I had to see if there were any parts of me that were like Destro. And there were, I won't tell you which, okay? It's none of your business. What is your business is how well I can move you to do the role. Remember, by sound, the whole person can be acted, the whole character, by sound. Now, I'm not a voice actor, I'm an actor.